Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and I'm broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe. Thank you for joining us. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Our spring season runs until early June, and it's all available online at writersfestival.org, so all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. And if you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to rate and review it, and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. Today we'll hear my conversation with Arkady Martin about her Takes Kalan books, A Memory Called Empire, which won the Hugo Award, and its companion novel, A Desolation Called Peace. As you'll hear in the conversation, Arkady is both fascinating and accomplished. Not only can she write an amazing diplomatic space opera, she's also a PhD in Byzantine history and a city planner with a focus on sustainable development. Here's our conversation. Well, thank you so much for being uh, with us this afternoon. I'm really glad um, to be here. You know, and I, I'm so excited to talk with you about the Takes Kalan uh, books, but I also want to be very careful because there is a kind of a, a murder mystery uh, at the center uh, of the, the beginning of the story in the first book. And I want to tread softly around the plot to protect some of the detective work that makes the gap between the Yaskander Imago and the Ambassador 15 years later so interesting and intriguing. And just, I don't want to give away too much. I know most people will have read the first book before listening to this, and, and many will have already read the second, but I do want to be careful. And so I think the easiest way around that is to not get too caught up in the specifics of the story, but more about the the kind of the the heart of it, of, of, of how you came to all of this. Um, I think I'll just we can say, do that. We can do that, right? Without, you know, yeah. I'm not too worried about spoilers, but but there's so much here we can get into. And um, I think uh, there's a few characters that I'm hoping we'll touch on, but, but the very... I think the first thing I want to start with is, well, the interesting thing about talking to you, uh, the fact that you write under a pseudonym. I think it might be an interesting thing to look at. Is that an interesting thing? Sure, like, we why can talk about it. Why, why Arkady Martin and why have a different, a different self uh, that writes the science fiction and, and a different self that inhabits the world? So first of all, it's an open pseudonym. So I yes. have zero problem with being identified as so. Arkady Martin is the same person as Anna Linton Weller and vice versa. And I initially decided to have a pseudonym quite a long time ago now, nearly a decade, when I started publishing sh short stories in the speculative fiction landscape. Um, so like back in 2012, 2013. And at the time, I was finishing my PhD in Byzantine history, and I assumed that I would be working in the academy in one respect or another for much of the rest of my life. And at that time, there was still a very sharp sort of advice that was given to grad students, which was, if you want to get hired and you want to have tenure, you can't do anything that would make people think that you weren't serious about your academic work. So I thought, okay, I would like to get hired. I would like to get tenure. Um, I'll write under an open pseudonym 
so that people who are looking for my science fiction can find that first, and people who are looking for my work as an academic can find that first. It was really always a kind of Google disambiguation. Um, and in a way, it still is. It still functions like that. Now, so no, so, yeah. Go ahead. No, no, just so, so this is, was very clearly not something where you were trying to hide uh, your, your identity in any meaningful way. But does it help you to have a, a name that you put on when you enter the speculative world or, or is it just is it just purely on the on the cover of the book? At this point, it's gotten relatively confusing. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't say that I put on a different persona for working in the speculative fiction space. It's more that I've forgotten where the dividing line between Arcady and Anna Linden really is. Um, Especially as my work and what I write about have gotten variously closer over the past decade. I no longer work in academia. I work in climate and energy policy. And everyone knows that I write science fiction. There's this, And vice versa, actually. All of the science fiction people know what I do, at least in very broad strokes, um, during the day, as it were. And there's a great deal of cross-pollination between the questions that I ask in my work on energy and climate policy and my work as a historian and the things I like to write about in speculative fiction. They're just shifted through a science fiction lens. And in that sense, if I was starting out right now, I probably wouldn't pick a pseudonym, but I've grown enormously fond of it and have a sufficient number of friends who have always known me as Arcady that it just feels like another name that is also mine. That's fantastic. So you mentioned now the two different uh, um, academic backgrounds. The first, the, the Byzantine history. Y you've said, I think, in, in other interviews that that the Tixkalan stories are in some ways a kind of a fictionalization of, of your, your thesis, your PhD thesis. Can you just walk us through that just a little bit, the connection between the ancient past and the imagined future? Sure. So Tixkalan as an empire is deeply influenced by the study I have done of Byzantium as a empire, as a medieval empire, also as a continuation of the Roman imperial project. So there's a lot of different kinds of imperial sort of edifices. One that I'm really interested in, because it was the Byzantine model and I spent a decade immersed in it, is the concept of a universalizing empire, an empire that believes it is coterminous with the known universe. And Byzantium is certainly not the only one that has believed that. But I wanted to build one that worked like that. And I also love a lot of the questions and ideas that come from the work I did as a Byzantinist about borderlands, about communication from the center to the periphery, about cultural assimilation. These are not things that are invented in the 20th century or the 19th for that matter. They're questions that have always been really central to how people communicate their own stories about what has happened to them and what their lives look like. And I wrote, as you mentioned, my dissertation on the letters of 
Byzantine diplomats who were stationed on the border back towards the center of that empire, which is Constantinople. Um, and the people that I was writing about were deeply invested in maintaining a sense of still being Byzantine, even though they were out in the edges of the world. And I carried those ideas forward into a postdoctoral project that I did at Uppsala University in Sweden between 2014 and 2017, where I was looking at historiography and narrative construction on the Byzantine-Armenian border, so that's in the east of Byzantium, using some of the same texts that I'd used in my dissertation, plus some new ones. And at the same time as I was doing that postdoc, I was writing a memory called Empire. And the same big questions, the ones about, well, what do you do if you have fallen in love with an empire that is eating your home alive? Um, mm. That question, I was working on it in my academic work, but yeah, I wanted sorry, to work I on it. Just interrupt for, oh, for sure. one second, because just because you, that's your dedication for the book. And I find that so yeah. beautiful and so interesting. It, it's dedicated to anyone who loves, I'm going to pair, I don't have it in front of me, but anyone who loves a culture that is consuming their own, is that? Devouring, but yes, that's pretty Devouring. close. Yeah. And can you just, can you tell us more about that idea? of loving that the culture and, and and how does that play out in your own life? So I'm I'm an assimilated American Jew. Judaism is very important to me. Um, I practice Reconstructionist Judaism, but I have been aware my whole life about the contingency of assimilation in an imperial culture. I America is an imperial culture. And one, if one is a, a white Jewish person like I am, you are part of the majority culture until you're not. There's that edge. And at least in, in my own personal history, I've always been aware of that edge. And I also have been an immigrant several times. I've lived in Sweden, lived in Turkey, lived in the UK. And the experience of being in a place where you really want to be, where you believe you be you can belong, that it's worth you being there, but knowing fundamentally that you are not part of that is an experience that I've had on a small degree. And I know that people who immigrate permanently have on a much larger one. It's so beautiful what you're talking about here and that this one of the, the, the scale that you're writing at one of the things that it makes visible is all the ways in which our cultures are embedded in our in the language itself, right? All of the assumptions and understandings that that we that we bring with us without ever really examining them. And, and one of the ways you you point at that right at the start of the first book is the notion of Tixkalan as being the name for the city the name for the planet, the name for the empire, the name for citizens. And so the ways, I just find this so fascinating how you're you're playing with, with sort of the language as a, a kind of a, a root code for, for understanding the world we live in. And yeah, anyway, I'm sorry. I yeah, think just, I I'm, got that from, that's one of the things I took from Byzantium. Uh, so the Byzantines don't call themselves Byzantines. They call themselves Romayoi. Uh, which is basically the word in medieval Greek for Roman. And they call their empire 
Romaya, which is the empire of the Romans. And to be Byzantine is to be a Romaya. So that sense of the name for the world and the name for the empire and the name for the people being all one thing, that kind of semantic flattening is such a strong ideological statement that it's one I wanted to really deeply explore. Uh, so I recreated it. That's fantastic. And I mean, the other, one of the other things about Texcalan as a culture that is so interesting is the central place of poetry um, in, in everything. I mean, from, from foreplay to propaganda to social posturing, right? You've, you've, yep. made, you've placed poetry right at the center. Is that also from the past or is that an invention? It's from the past, the present, and I believe the future also. <laughs> um, poetry is deeply embedded in political and social structuring of humans. It's how we talk to each other a lot. And I think in modern Anglophone Western culture, we've relegated it to very particular spaces which make it more opaque. And those spaces are the open mic, the rap battle, and the political rally. And we don't always think of the latter two, the rap battle and the political rally as being poetry, though they are. The, especially the um, the rap battle, and actually the there's a poetry contest in A Memory Called Empire, which if you think of it as a rap battle, you wouldn't be wrong. Uh, that wouldn't be a bad way to imagine it at all. The other fun thing and, about that is that I did steal that from Byzantium. They had those in the 12th century. Oh, that's so fantastic. Um, you know, so you, we've got a, an empire. I guess that we should, f just for anyone that has not yet uh, entered the world of Texcalan, it, it's a story about a, an, an ambassador, Mehit Desmar, coming from uh, uh, a station, LaSalle, that is on the verge of or right on the edge of an empire that, that sort of inevitably is going to consume it. And her job as the ambassador is to just try and keep independence, right? She's been tasked mm -hmm. with, with keeping independence. And so one of the ways that, that it, so that you're looking here very clearly at the demarcation between the world and the not world, the other, right? The, the yes. self. And, and she keeps running into this notion of, well, the word for human, right? Which we've seen in, in many human languages over the years that, that mm -hmm. our sense of self is really pretty limited and <laughs> the other. Yeah. Um, and so wondering if you, what, can you talk a little bit about how you came up with the, the, the cell station culture and the central place that the Imago technology has in that culture as a way of looking at the Texcalan empire? So let me quickly explain for those who haven't read the books yet, what an imago is in the context of um, the Texcalan universe and on LaSalle Station. It's basically a technological brain implant that puts the memories and skill set and some of the personality of the person who used to have your job in your head. Um, I have been assured by a very skilled neurologist friend that it is completely impossible for it to work the way I described. Uh, and I kind of took that on board and was like, okay, so it's completely impossible. This is science fiction. I'm going to do it anyway. The reason I wanted to do it 
was that I was thinking about the different kinds of memory. Mm. So Texcalan does memory through cultural coherence, through a constant ability to evoke the past and the great art of the past. It's why they do all of this internal citation. That's why they have poetry that references other poetry. Lasell has made a very different choice because what they're most interested in is not ideological memory, but institutional memory. The memory that says that not just you know how to, let's say, repair an engine, but that you have the experience and the little tiny clues, like where in this shop do we keep those pieces? I can go get them quickly. That kind of institutional memory. You see this a lot in um, books on how to manage people in corporations. Like, What is the, the bus number for your, your department? That's a terrible thing. The bus number is how many people can get hit by a bus in your workplace and have your workplace still be functional? you want that number to be larger than one. Because if that number is one, you are really, really screwed if bad luck happens. But how do you get institutional memory, experiential memory to be passed down? I mean, us here in the 21st century without the benefit of things like Imago machines, we write down procedure manuals and we have people shadow each other through training. LaSalle Station is basically a parked generation ship. They can't leave and they don't have a planet. They can support about 30,000 people. It's a really tight environment with very small margins for error. And accidents happen in space. Airlocks, cosmic radiation, explosions, all kinds of nasty things. And if you lose the people who keep your tiny boat of 30,000 lives going. You can't get them back fast enough. So it's one of those problems that I'm deeply fascinated by. And and I love generation ship stories. I always have. Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought, what if, what if we could just fix that? What would that do to a culture? if we had the fix already. So that's kind of how I came up with them. The other thing they're based on is classical Armenia to go back to my Byzantium uh, inspiration, the conflict between the expanding Byzantine empire in the 10th and 11th centuries and what they encounter on their Eastern border amongst other things, that's the autocephalous Armenian kingdoms. There are several little Armenian kingdoms and some of what Mahit is dealing with are things that people were dealing with in the 11th century. Right, and so there's this wonderful tool and technique that they have where where you become one with your past, the person who did the job before you. But what what is for me very interesting is you understood in this that memory wouldn't just be the ability to do things, that you couldn't separate that from the personality, from Mm -hmm. the... the, even the, the, the unconscious physical ticks, right? There's this, there's, I think, a few references to, to uh, Yaskander, the previous ambassador, um, who, whose old imago is embedded in, in Mahit Desmar. 
that she notices herself sort of doing a, um, a hand movements that are not her own, right? Mm -hmm. That are part of the new self. And so this merging of, of one personality with another and the danger that that would have of, of you know, that I think is implied here that, that two people in a body would be too many. Uh, you need to become one, yeah. right? You need to find a way forward. And in much the same way that the Texcalan Empire through a totally different kind of technology, the technology of language is doing the same thing, right? By repeating mm -hmm. these poems. So, a, and I love this, this notion you have of, of poetry as a, as a central animating force. And I guess you're right. It is an animating force. Uh, you know, just, it's hard to hear the poetry in a slogan like, you know, make America great again, but it is a form of it, kind of chaos. Magic it's not or, the or slogan. It's when people chant it over and over again. Right. Right, it's the way it embodies interaction. And, you know, so we've touched a little bit on the, the Byzantine side of it, but then your the, the newer venture, the city planning, I find this so, I mean, what a perfect job for, for a science fiction writer to be <laughs> <Yeah>. imagining <laughs> the future. But I found a, a, there was a, an interview or, or something you wrote about city planning and, and you referred to the, the sort of a city planner in, in our modern age as a translator with an agenda. And I just love that. Can you talk about that a little bit? I'd love to. That's from an essay I wrote called uh, Everyone's World is Ending All the Time, which was really about how I came to city planning and how I kind of looked at it as a project that is meaningful. Uh, it's also about climate change because that's kind of why I came to city planning is that I have a, a deep tendency to find the largest possible problem and attempt to get my hands dirty. And well, I guess a, a planner is a translator with an agenda. You have to think about what, what a planner does. This planner doesn't imagine the future in isolation a good planner, at least in our modern form of what a city planner is, has to go talk to people and figure out what they need and also what they want, which it would be nice if those things were the same. Uh, sometimes they are, sometimes you get lucky. And not just one group of people, but many, many, many groups of people, all of whom will want different things, need different things, and possibly hate each other profoundly for extremely good reasons. And then out of all of those conversations, you have to create some kind of map forward. So to be a translator is to, to be able to convey as much of true meaning and nuance from one person's unintelligible speech to another person who could not understand it otherwise. But to be a translator with an agenda is to hold all of those incompatible desires and wants and communicate them in a way that designs the ultimate outcome that creates a livable world. And this, again, it comes back to climate change. Like we can build a world, build a plan that will make a lot of people happy, but it will also result in ever accelerating greenhouse gas emissions. And none of the people that you talk to may care about that, but the, the planner has to, 
or at least I think so. And this is all somewhat un unorthodox. I think several of my old planning professors would like, be horrified at me um, because we really are supposed to be more neutral than I'm being. But I think in a time of planetary crisis, neutrality is vastly overrated. Well, and, and is neutrality even an option? I mean, we, I, I'm just thinking of the way we used to study history. Um, you know, all of our attention was on the, the basically on the 1%. Mm -hmm. Right, the idea of how we understood the past, very little of it was what was it like for a young girl born. You know, like we never yeah. think about what is that. What is it like for the rank and file? And so it's interesting. You, you know, this is seems to me often a tool that is used to say, well, don't get too passionate. You can't get too worked up about climate change, as if impending death for all of us is not something. It's to not be something to be about. worked up about. I mean, personally, I think despair is relatively useless because it prevents you from doing work. But passion is extremely useful, and so is fear. Right. Well, and in that essay, uh, uh, you all, you talked about grief, right? I mean, as a city mm -hmm. planner, as a human being, so much of what we're doing day to day, and this is, I think, the pandemic and Black Lives Matter and the, the way Indigenous people on, in my country and yours are, are being uh, steamrolled uh, for pipelines and, and mm -hmm. various things. I mean, this is, it's impossible. I, I just, I wonder how one would be neutral and what that would be apart from sociopathy. I mean, what would neutrality be in that? I don't um, think there is a way to be neutral and honest about it currently. Right. So how much of what you're doing when you are imagining Cakes Kalan or, or working through the problems there, how much of that is talking directly to those people that can't imagine a future that is different from the present and how much how much are you writing for the people that are desperate for a future that is different from the present if that makes any sense that's an interesting question because i think i'm not writing for either of those groups ah. i think i'm writing to expand the possibility space and yeah. that's only part of what I'm doing. I'm, I also want to tell a story and I also want to answer a thematic question for myself or work through a thematic question for myself. But the futures I am interested in exploring are ones which are unexpected, which are mm -hmm. wilder and stranger than what we may have imagined. It's one of the reasons that I'm absolutely terrified of writing near future science fiction, because the the stepwise process of getting from where we are now to where we would be in 25 years. Good Lord, I'm not good enough to do that. <laughs> I'm not sure anybody is. Maybe William Gibson. Uh, he's the only one I'd trust if he told me something was going yeah. to happen. William Gibson or Cory Doctorow seem to be the only two that live in that space or, you know, Neil Stevenson, maybe. Um well, so now we've talked a little bit about the you know world building and that stuff, but you did just mention that storytelling is the, is the key here. But part of that is is coming up with characters that are so believable and that I just want to spend time with. And one of the things that I've noticed recently in speculative fiction is there's I almost feel like very often I'm reading somebody's wish fulfillment of of the best friends they never had, <laughs> or, you know, that they're imagining this thing. And, and in some ways, this is where a character. Uh, like three seagrass 
is so wonderful because this is somebody that I, as a reader, want to spend time with. I completely understand why Mahit wants to spend time with 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 Three Seagrass, but also it's a fully it, it, she's a a real character. There's flaws, there's issues, there's baggage. You know how how did you how did you set that up, creating Three Seagrass and the relationship with Mahit and and just how much of that is just these are the people I wish I could spend time with, and how much of it is just imagining what this future might look like? Well, I think I certainly don't write people I'd want to spend time with, except accidentally. There's a couple of them. I would spend time with Three Seagrass. Um, I'd also hang out with 19 Ads, which says some rather terrible things about me. Um, but the real nasty little secret about Three Seagrass is that I'm basically writing myself at age 26. Incredibly ambitious, incredibly risk-taking, funny, though she's funnier than I ever was, and accidentally racist because she doesn't know any better. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I did that on purpose exactly. Like I did not set out to write a version of myself, but I, in writing her, I discovered that that was what I was reaching for. Like that particular sense of forward momentum that I remember from being that age um, and it's concomitant errors. Mm. And I think I draw a great deal from my own experiences, but also those of people I know. And also just what does the story need? Uh, the character of 12 Azalea, for instance, who is um, Three Seagrass's grad school friend, functionally. I invented him because I literally needed someone to move the plot along in chapter three of A Memory Called Empire. I had no idea he was going to be such a central part of the rest of the book. Essentially, I needed someone who would knock on the door and that Three Seagrass would open it. So who on earth would she open the door for? Okay, old grad school friend. And then the character was just there and became a deeply integral part of the plot. And now you see, so Three Seagrass is you at 26. Are the other characters, would 12 Azalea, Mahit... Iskander, any are they all no elements no, no. of you, or these these are just people you you? They're people I made up. Um, they're the fictional people. Uh, I've made up characters my whole life, so it's a very natural process. A lot of it is what kind of person do I want to give a particular experience to? Like, what do I think would be interesting? This sort of person having this experience. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess we should maybe talk, uh, for anyone that hasn't read the book, they're going to be wondering, Three Seagrass, Twelve is Aliens, <laughs> yeah. what's with the names, right? So you have this beautiful, and it's part of a whole richly imagined world where none of nothing in either book feels, none of the cultural references feel like they were just sort of shoehorned in. They all feel organic, and, and you can see how they are. But so in Texcalan, names are different than, than ours. It's a, there's always a digit and... A noun, right? Mm-hmm. Number noun. Where did, and so, is, is, where did that come from? It's such an intriguing. It's it's something I've not seen played with in fiction that often. The idea of, of a whole different setup for what a language, or why we would name, why we would choose certain names. Mm-hmm. So where did that come from? It is inspired by the Mixtec people of Central America, who, along with 
regular names also had sort of sacred names that were a number and a noun, usually an animal, that mapped up to a, a sacred cosmological calendar. So the day you were born would give you a name. And they also have a sort of divinatory properties, a bit like tarot cards or a horoscope. And I love that. And one of the other big influences on Texcalan is Central American medieval empires. So the Aztecs um, and amongst many others. And I wanted to pull that in. And one of the side effects that I found very quickly from doing that that made me want to keep going was that it allowed me to bring the visual language of the Texcalanli culture to the front of the reader's experience. The, what are the nouns that Tixlanlitzlam think of as important nouns or interesting nouns? Got a million different flowers. They really like astronomical phenomena as names. Um, some things that are sort of very simple hand tools, despite the fact that they are an incredibly advanced technological uh, nation functionally. So mm. getting to do that was really nice. Now, how much of, of the culture of, of Texcalan and the cell station and the entire world, how much of that did you bring with you either from the, the you know, your, your, your academic work or, you know, sort of Silmarillion style, like Tolkien with a Bible of, of here are the languages and how much did you discover as you were telling the story to yourself? I am an aesthetic oriented writer. I have very little pre-writing world building. I do almost none, which I think occasionally terrifies people. I don't outline either. So I knew what I wanted it to feel like. I knew from the beginning that I wanted all of these flowers, that I wanted flowers to be really central to the visual language and to the cultural sort of expression of this empire. And I wanted to do that because I never see it in science fiction. It's always mm. sort of a giant apple store, white and chrome, <laughs> and I'm bored. So, and I love color. I love really elaborate clothes and architecture and thinking about those things mean. So all of that was what I wanted it to feel like. And then I just wrote things that felt like that. And over time you kind of build up an accretion of a world and then you just have to make sure that you don't break any of your own rules. Oh, that's so interesting. So, but now this is something I hear from a lot of writers, the idea of, of discovering as you're writing it, but very, almost never from somebody who's written a, a, anything that is a mystery or could be a mystery. So did you know what happened to Yaskander before I did as a reader, <laughs> you know, or, or did that come to you as you were, as you were telling the story? I'm, I'm really curious about that. So I knew what had happened and where, but not why. Oh. I was not actually sure of the inciting incident, the sequence of who was involved when, I think I figured that out about halfway through the book. And part of that is that I I think of plot work in writing as a sort of process of supersaturating a solution until it crystallizes. So I just add things um, and people and they have agendas 
because they must. If they appear in the story and they do this, they have to have a reason, right? Uh, even if I don't know it at the time, I just need them to do that thing because that's the next thing that happens in the story. And eventually I kind of sit down with all of it and think about, okay, so what do all of these people want? What have I logically constructed? And that usually gives me the answer to the whodunit. Hmm. And would that same kind of organic approach be, would that be inherent in your work as a city planner, as, as somebody mitigating climate change, looking at, or, I mean, is that again your notion of, of the, the danger of coming with a solution prescribed and sort of trying to force everyone to get to your solution? Is that, <laughs> I think it's part of it. I am much more deliberate in work that is going to have immediate effects on other humans. But I think I spend a lot of time trying to make my process as a city planner, as a policy advisor, as holistic and gestalt-based as possible. So I want to have all the possible pieces of information and then dump them in a bucket and shake it and pour it out again and see what there is. That's fantastic. And, you know, I'm, I'm very curious as you're imagining problems and solutions to the future, is that informing your work here and now, or is your work here and now informing the futures you're creating more? Like, I mean, I imagine it's a, it's a always both a sort of a Pisces yeah. tail eating itself, but, but, <laughs> To what extent, like, can you, is one more prominent than the other? Like, are you finding that that by imagining the future, you're able to help the present more or more that what you need to fix in the present informs what you need to fix in the future? For me, what I am currently working on tends to feed into the construction of the piece of fiction I'm playing with. My current project, for instance, is about arson water rights and wildfires, and also smart electrical grids, all of which are things that I have touched at least a little bit in my day-to-day -day work in the past few years. But what I take back from the fiction to my work as a policy person, as a city planner, and honestly, as a historian, is an awareness of complexity, the deep and fundamental difficulty of predicting anything and how much events turn on both simultaneously, giant socio-ecological forces and individuals who may or may not have had a good day today. Working even adjacent to politics will teach you that. Right. And I you know, the coming back to that essay uh, you wrote about the world is always ending uh, for somebody, um, there's this phrase that I just adore, speculative resistance. And I'm wondering, like, how, how important do you feel it is right now to be imagining a future that is inclusive that is scary, that is terrifying, that is all the things that we know the future will be, but that where, where so much of what is unique about individual cultures, individual people is maintained. Is like mm -hmm. how, how how important is that idea to you of projecting 
projecting the self, projecting the individuality and saying, well, there, there must be room for that in the future. There must be a way forward. I think that this is complicated because I don't think that fiction has to be didactic. I really mm. don't. I don't think that an author owes that to the world. I do think that I personally am interested in, as I said before, sort of exploding the possibility space, trying to make it possible to imagine things we haven't imagined before. And I love the phrase speculative resistance. It comes from Malka Older, who is both a brilliant scholar of disasters and disaster management and a fantastic science fiction writer. Uh, her series, um, the first one's called Infomocracy, imagines a future of democracy, which is completely different than the democracy we have uh, while still being fundamentally a democratic process. Um, it creates this idea of micro-democracy where you every 100,000 people basically are their own country and they can decide whether they want to join up with other ones and it's not geographically based. Um, so that deeply fascinates wow. me. And like that kind of thinking, something that is a logical follow through, but so utterly new. And is that sort of sort of like chosen families, but as nation states almost? Like you wouldn't be geographically connected with the people that would be part of your well, you you vote with your ge with your geography, but you might be joining a she calls them sentinels, uh, so like a hundred thousand people, a, a sentinel of people, um, and you you vote for the one that uh, is in your direct area, but ten thousand a hundred thousand people in Mumbai it might be like a couple blocks. A couple, a hundred thousand people in the center of Iowa is a different question. So you have this concept of having the ability to vote to belong to something that is non-contiguous. Like you could, your your neighborhood in Mumbai might vote to become part of a large nation state that has sentinels all over the world but your neighborhood in oh, Mumbai might vote to be its own nation state that has nobody else in it. That's so cool. I mean, and such when, and a so cool when, book. I really like that a lot. And, and again, this is what's so wonderful about the work you're doing and the work of, of science fiction, fantasy writer, anyone that is projecting ourselves beyond this very moment. And, and sort of there, there is an implied, I, I agree, you know, the, the idea of, owing the readers a happy ending is is crap <laughs> or the idea that oh yeah but just the very act in some ways writing science fiction is a kind of an act of hope or, or faith or something right there is this idea that there is a tomorrow regardless yes. of what it seems like now um i'm really curious as somebody who is you're straddling these well three really different wonderful worlds you got the past the present and the future right and in, in, in the various hats you're wearing what has the last you know, 14 months or so, the, the basically, you know, the COVID, the pandemic, what, what has this, this lockdown time taught you about cities and about the future? Like, are, are, are there some, some, some things that you are, that you can point to that you've learned or are used, is it too soon to ask that question or is that just too big a question to ask anyone? Oh, I think it's a really good question. I'm not going to be able to answer it well or quickly. 
Um, in part because my own experience of lockdown is mostly, oh my God, I hate this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm a city person. I always have been. I come from Manhattan in New York City. And I like having a million people around me who I don't know and who are just doing interesting things. And like that, that sense of almost a giant machine that is alive. And I miss that desperately. On the other hand, I spent a lot of time in the first six months of the pandemic kind of raising my eyebrows and laughing at everyone who said cities are over. Cities aren't Mm. over. Oh, my God. Um, Nothing is endable in 14 months. Nothing that we've been doing for 6,000 years is endable in 14 (laughs) months. We've also had pandemics before. Um, If you look at the 1918 flu the art scene in America in 1918-1919 went through something very similar to what the art scene is going through right now. And it was pretty bad and pretty horrible. And we lost art forms, artists, both in the sense that they got the flu and died and in the sense that they couldn't continue being artists. Um, In some ways that marks the end of vaudeville as a large scale format and a shift towards um, both more film and more the, the development of the American musical. Like I can go down a rabbit hole here. The rabbit hole ends with the Marx brothers, uh, but <laughs> it's a good rabbit hole. Um, yeah. But things change and that is not necessarily good, but we still have cities and we will still have cities. We will have public art and concerts and people all pressed together in small spaces because that's what humans do. Mm. The way we do those things may change. And that's the part I can't predict. One of the things that I'm disappointed by is again, at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of very smart people were terrifiedly hopeful that we might actually break some of the big oppressive structures of mm-hmm. how work works, how childcare works. And we haven't done that. Um, we have instead damaged a lot of people and used a lot of technology to maintain those oppressive structures as best as we can. And I think we have another window right now because we're right on that edge again in a transition place. The next three to six months as people go back into the world and think about what they have learned and what they've seen, what they've experienced, I think that's a point where we might see some very unexpected, very new and very wonderful things or not. I don't know. I have some hope that we will, though. Things like um, New York State very recently passed their budget for next year. And that budget contains a whole bunch of money for undocumented workers who have been uh, frontline workers during the pandemic to give them relief that they aren't eligible for because they aren't American citizens um, from the federal government. And that would not have happened without an enormous amount of organizing and a rupture in the status quo. 
And I'm really glad it did. Mm-hmm. I'm, you, just to take that further, I mean, there, there's a, so much we could talk about in terms of disadvantaged backgrounds, disinvented, uh, disinvested communities, the ways in which we're, we're ignoring some people and others. But I'm wondering if, if it seems to me in some ways, and I really curious as a city planner and somebody imagining the future, what you think of this, the thing that has come to light to me is, is all the ways in which both urban and rural living is sort of subverted and taken over by suburban living. I don't know where, what it's like where you're living now or what it's like in New York now, but I can say in, in, in Ottawa, the city where I live, mm-hmm. there's an incredible amount of power in the suburban communities. And, and oh, that yes. is at the expense of, of the rural, the farm, the people that actually you know grow the food that we eat and the urban, the center, the, the, those mm-hmm. of us that live in the center of the city. Is that sustainable? Am I wrong about that? Is you that are not wrong. It is not sustainable. Okay. And I do not like suburbs one little bit. They have a really interesting history. So, and this is a city planning thing that uh, yeah. you get to see the the deep history of land use. Like, why do we use land the way we do? Why do we have so many roads um, and so many cars? And why do people live on giant cul-de-sacs where they can't walk to see their neighbors? Yeah. Well, when people came back from World War II from overseas, at least in America, and I don't know the history of planning in Canada nearly as much as I know the history in America, one of the things the American government did was essentially invent the mortgage. Um, before the Federal Housing Authority, if you were going to buy property, you almost certainly had it in cash, the money to do so or you had secured a loan from a bank that was a fairly fast repayable loan, uh, much more like a loan you take out for a business now, like with a term of two, five years, something like that. The 30-year mortgage, um, which was meant to reward GIs, people who had served in World War II, um, give everybody the ability to have their own little plot of land, their own house, coincided with a movement towards technological sanitation in cities. So cities, by virtue of being a lot of people close together, often have large outbreaks of disease, for instance, um, and they can be dirty, and they definitely have lots of people who don't look like you. Um, And this makes some people very nervous. So the idea of going out in so you can experience nature in your own house, having your own house, um, having a little backyard where you can grow a little bit of food and breathe the fresh air. That's the original suburb. And if you go find a place that was built in the 1930s, 1940s as a suburb, um, they're usually now fairly integrated into the cities that they surround Mm -hmm. because they're that first ring. The layouts are actually quite nice and they're usually built around um, public transportation so that people who live there can easily commute into the center of town. But everybody wants one. There's a lot of people. And in America, there's a lot of land. We have a horrible tendency to spread out. Um, And the process of building the sort of suburban tracts all across America. It's 
fast. It gives lots of people real economic freedom. Well, lots of uh, white people. Most black people in America were not able to build intergenerational wealth in the that way of acquiring real estate. And there's lots of reasons for that, but I'm getting a bit far afield. Um, functionally, suburbs are a terrible idea once you get past that first ring. And I admit that I am deeply biased as someone who grew up in one of the densest places on earth and loves it and now lives in a small city surrounded by a whole lot of rural area. Um, I've been considering purchasing property here. And the very first thing that my wife and I talked about was we are not going to live in the sort of suburban area on the south of town. We are either going to wait until we can afford something in the center of town or not do this at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but does that mean you are you are you open to the idea that you would not? I mean, New York City is is um, N.K. Jemison just with the the city we became such uh, a good book. It was such a good book, and it's it is a city that I love. It's it's a sort of a ten hour drive from where I live, and, and mm -hmm. I you know I think of it as the capital of the world because the United Nations is there. Mm -hmm. You know, I know a lot of people that have moved to New York. Very few people I like have left New York and been happy about it. And I don't know if that says something about me or or what that says, but are you open to the idea that that's a city you might never live in again? No, I will absolutely live there again. <laughs> okay. um, I just like what I'm doing now and want to stay here for a while. It's that sense of, I got invited here to help do good work by right. the, the people who hired me. And that's a commitment you make as a civil servant that you don't just pick up stakes. You do the work until your time at doing that work is over. So I don't know, half a decade, a decade, something like that. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's a kind of a nice, that notion of, of service, right. Of, of working for the greater good. Do you obviously, I mean, you made in takes Kalan poetry, a central force. Do you feel that the work you do in fiction is as valuable or or on the same level as the work you do as a city planner in terms of its val its real value to to our lives or do you see those as completely disparate the, the notion of, of how you make things better as a city planner and how you make things better as a writer ask me in 50 years i don't know what the long-term <laughs> effects of anything i've written will be yeah fair enough Fair enough. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today about these remarkable books that takes Kalan. Book one and two are out now. Is there more coming? Are we there will for... eventually be more books in the Tix Kalan universe, but the two that are out now are a duology. Um, they're a complete arc, so you can feel satisfied with coming to the end. But is this, are you now, what you're working on, is it in a completely different universe or are completely you? Completely different universe. You, it's a standalone book that I'm working on now. And then I plan to go back to Texcalon. And so can I just, as a final question for you, ask, what's the process of building a second universe like? How does it compare starting over uh, uh, from, from, from doing the very first one with Texcalon, creating a universe from scratch? Is it easier, harder, different, the same? Much harder. Um, and that's in part because I'm kind of doing Earth in 2485 in this one. So it's, for me, that's way scarier than making up something completely new. 
That was my conversation with Arkady Martin about her Takes Kalan books, A Memory Called Empire and A Desolation Called Peace. Anyone who's curious about the sentinel democracy idea she mentions may want to check out Annalie Newitz's new podcast, Deep Futures, as the first episode is called Democracy of Tomorrow and explores this idea further. As always, I want to thank you for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. It's always a good idea to buy a book, and of course, you can't go wrong supporting local independent booksellers. If you enjoy this podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. Your financial support will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. And thank you for listening.